This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, live on tape from Vox's headquarters in New York City. It's very cold because it's almost winter. Got to go back in time when it was warmer. And when I talked to Sam Dolnick, he's the assistant managing editor of the New York Times, which you know about. Um, he's in charge of lots of cool interactive stuff there. He's the guy who brings you the daily. He's the guy who also brings you the weekly, their new TV show. Um, we recorded this conversation live on Google's New York campus, which is why we sound like we're talking in front of an audience. We were. You'll enjoy it. Thanks. Hi, Sam. Hi, good afternoon. I'd like to talk about news because you're in the news business and uh, you were at the debates that you guys co-hosted. Yes, very much. Two days ago yeah. in Westerville, Ohio. I have questions about Westerville, but I'd rather know, I have I'm, my main questions about the debate. What was the best thing that you saw, most interesting thing that you saw this week that wasn't on TV? Give me some backstage insight. Yeah, we partnered with CNN to host the debate. And, um, you know, the New York Times has started working in television. We've got now a t TV show on FX and Hulu. So we've been learning this new language and this new ecosystem. But to work with a machine like CNN and see how they turned a basketball gymnasium at Otterbein University into the center of the political universe for a night, the army of people that went to take, it was fascinating to kind of be in the center of the media political complex. So the, for the, the, the New York Times felt a little like a pro-am. We were a tiny little cog. We were there, there was a room crafting the questions for weeks, took it really, really seriously. Um, and the Times, we were full partners there. But then beyond that, it was completely CNN's show. Your show, you guys run the show. You'll send, you're telling CNN, you guys run the show, we'll ask some good questions. You get the satellite trucks. The, the Otterbein University didn't have air conditioning in the gym. So they figured out how to pipe in air conditioning for the thing. We didn't know how to do that. Is there anyone there, when you're watching 12 candidates on stage, is there someone there who in the room plays much better than they do on TV? On stage, it was clear from the beginning that Pete Buttigieg was there to play, to make a statement. And he came across as very aggressive and um, really determined to own the night. And I think he, I think he did. Bernie Sanders, um, every question he wants to get in there, he's raising his hand and he was completely impassioned. If you wondered if he would be tired or if the new heart attack would have worn him out, it did not seem to. And, and even if it did, he was not going to let anyone know that it, that it did. No, he was going to get in on every question. It's all upside for you guys to do a debate like that, right? Is there any risk for you to participate in a nationally televised debate? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, Mark Lacey, who's our national editor, who is kind of a classic New York Times person, foreign correspondent, White House correspondent, national editor. He's been covered mass shootings and earthquakes and, and everything, but he's not a TV guy. He, you've probably been on TV more than him. He, has, he, he doesn't do much of it. So that was the deep end in a major way. So he could have frozen up. He could have botched things a thousand different ways. This is live TV with many millions watching. So it did feel like a risk, um, but he did great. He was up to it. We were confident he would. CNN did a ton of training. And most importantly, it just felt this is such an important race and the stakes are so high and the questions the candidates are grappling with are so big that we felt we wanted to be a part of it. Um, let's just talk about the, the, the race in general. Every four years or even more often, there is a debate or a discussion about how the press should cover the presidential race. And, and usually there's a big, uh, I just talked to Ben Smith at BuzzFeed about this. Usually it's an academic critique. Says we shouldn't cover this as a horse race and you should get into the issues and, and you're, you're too easily distracted. The press generally is too easily distracted by this or that. 
Do you guys think you're approaching, that? do you think the Times is approaching the race differently this time than they would have in 2016 or 2012? I think, you know, the way that we're covering it, this race feels like more than any others that I can think of, a race about big ideas. You know, the, the Democratic Party is trying to figure out what it stands for, who who represents it, but also what kind of system we want. I mean, Elizabeth Warren's line, big structural change. Like these are big ideas they're kicking around. And I and think- And you think that's getting through in the coverage? I do think so. I mean, that's certainly what we're, what we're going after, trying to interrogate what are these big ideas? How would they work? Are they plausible? And kind of what is the- the society, the idea for society underneath them. These are, I think, bigger changes than we've seen discussed in recent debates. It does not at all feel like tinkering around the edges. So for us, I think you're right, more than the horse race, it's trying to understand who are these people bringing these ideas? How would their ideas work? And how plausible are they? And then let people decide, do they want in? But my devil's advocate question is, it's a, if there's a race, you should Tell me who's winning, right? Oh, I, absolutely. And I think we are. I mean, it's still- and It's a really, human desire to yeah. want to know how that's going. Yeah. I mean, you got to remember there's, what, 13 months left? Um, you know, by this stage, was Obama even a serious candidate? Like, there's such a long ways to go that I think too much of the polling or the horse race stuff is going to change a thousand times. But- that's a big deal. I mean, we're interested in it and readers certainly are interested in it. So we are covering those polls and, you know, who's got the most field offices in Iowa. That's an important metric of who's taking this part of the race seriously. I don't remember the fundraising being covered the way it is now. And I think part of it is because it's tied to the debates, right? You need to raise X amount of yeah. money. And then also because I think that some of the candidates are making how they raise money more of an issue. But these these quarterly reports about who's raised more where, I mean, I'm assuming you guys aren't doing yeah deep coverage of that, but it seems like it's seeping. It's, it's a new version of the horse race. Well, I think fundraising has changed um, in politics. It used to be a handful of really wealthy people would write giant checks for candidates. But now that fundraising is so much more about regular people donating small amounts, that it's a much more useful metric for who's gaining traction in the race. So I think it is more meaningful than it used to be. You have an interesting job, right? You're sort of straddling the business side and the edit side. Yeah, You're not I mean, technically on the business side, but you essentially are. No, I mean I'm a I'm in the newsroom. I'm one of the senior editors in the newsroom, but my job is to oversee a lot of new projects, all the kind of new stuff. So when you're building a new department or launching a TV show or deciding whether we should pursue audio or not, you're right. Those are inherently business questions, but there's people who are a thousand times more sophisticated about business than me who, who I work with. I approach it from the journalism side. Journalistically, which of these mediums, which of these platforms, which of these partners will allow us to tell the stories that we want to tell with the integrity that we need and reach the biggest audience possible? Let's talk about the product that I think you're best known for. Is there anyone here who doesn't listen to The Daily? I think it's easier. <laughs> okay. So everyone here listens to The Daily. <laughs> On Friday, every Friday, Michael Bobrado does the extended credits. You get a shout out. You listen all the way to the end. Wow. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I listen to all podcasts all the time so I can hear all the ads. Yep. It's very important. Why do you get credited for The Daily? I shouldn't. I mean, The Daily is made by a team of incredibly talented and unbelievably hardworking producers. It started with three producers and Michael, and we had no idea what it would become, but it almost instantly caught on and became, we knew right away that this was going to be- You launched right around the inauguration, right? Yeah. Or the day exactly. after, I think. Yeah. And so 
as soon as we launched, it was, okay, how are we going to make this thing sustainable? This has got to last. And Lisa Tobin, who is the head of audio, is the kind of visionary behind it. And immediately she and Theo Balcom, who's the executive producer of the show, started hiring every producer they could find. You know, we went from three people now were beyond 30 and we're, and we're still hiring. So those are the folks who make the daily. I'm, you know, my job is I'm the masthead editor who's kind of overseeing them. It's essentially to do what I can to so make let's, them let's stipulate easier. that you're not recording and writing and yeah. doing the journalism. What role did you have in launching it initially? Was it something that you were pushing? How did, how did yeah, it, how was mean, it birthed? The, the way that it began, we had a couple of podcasts at the times, um, but they were kind of like, we thought about them the same way as we think of blogs, right? Like the sports desk maybe had a podcast and the books desk. And it was just an editor would go into a room and press record and then publish. And nobody really listened to them and nobody really worked on them. And um, my job was to try and think about new ways to reach people. And audio seemed like a clear one. So it was, I thought, what if we take audio seriously? And in the old days, we would have, you know, hired, said, okay, you're a good Metro editor. Now you should be in charge of audio and just go kind of, make a podcast, even though you don't know how, we decided to take it seriously. And so we led this big national search for a new head of audio. And we hired this woman, Lisa Tobin, who came from WBUR Public Radio, but had a really compelling vision and a track record of creating new new stuff. Did you have a model? Did you say, I like this podcast. What if we could do a version of this? No, we didn't really. I mean, this was, you know, after Serial and This American Life and like there, there had been big podcasts before, but it was kind of a notch or two before the current podcast boom. But we have so many stories at the New York Times. You have 1,500 reporters, all of them filing from every corner of the globe. We just had this like burning idea that we should be telling these stories in other ways. And that sometimes a newspaper version of a story leaves out all the good stuff, is not the best way to tell it. So we didn't know what kind of podcast we wanted, but we knew we had stories to tell. And so... Lisa came in, she hired a couple of producers behind them, and um, we started with a political show that was good and was fairly conventional, kind of a roundtable show. During the campaign. During the campaign with Michael Barbaro. I used to sit next to him when we were Metro reporters, and he's fun and funny and has the kind of like wicked sensibility that we thought would translate, and it did. And then um, when Trump won, it was the story of a lifetime, and the idea of a daily news show just felt clear. And Lisa and Theo and Michael had, had, had a vision for how to do it in a new way. Were there any smartasses slash know-nothings like myself who said, you guys don't get it. Podcasts aren't a daily thing. They're, they're, it's asynchronous. It's on demand. You listen to them on the weekend and catch up. You can't do something that's got a time peg to it. You can't make a daily news show. Yeah, There's no I mean, need I, for it. Exactly. All the don't con- do it. All the conventional wisdom, all the way up to the publisher, were all, all basically said that this is a bad idea. This isn't going to work. You, What you want to build is evergreen stuff that people can find in their own time. There's no such thing as appointment listening anymore. It's going to expire. And all that is right (laughs) and makes a lot of sense. But the news moment we live in and the way that habits are changing allowed for this to land at just the right moment. So giant success, billion downloads over what, less than two years? Over two years, less than three years, yeah. More than two years. Math is not my strong suit. Um, Very successful. I know you guys have done other podcasts since. Obviously, nothing is going to replicate that. But yeah. what does that success teach you about the next set of products you're going to make? It teaches us there's a lot more we can do in audio. Um, you know, we've got you for 20 minutes a day. But what 
are you going to listen to on the way home, on the weekend? What are you going to binge when you go for a long car ride? As I say, we've got all of these stories in the newsroom and we're telling you one of them every day now. We think there's more there. So what kind of form that takes is really fun. We did a multi-part, I think it was nine-part series following Rukmini Kalamachi, our ISIS reporter, last year for a project called Caliphate that was this kind of documentary inside the world of ISIS where she had these interviews with militants yeah. and jihadists and went to the front lines. That was a really exciting project for us. And we're going to be doing more of that kind of stuff. But we also think that um, the daily habit of the daily is really addictive and that there's more of that kind of regular programming that we can do as well. You guys have, everyone here I think knows that you've shifted the business model from an advertising-based model to a subscription-based yeah. model. Your your readers are now bearing the, or generating the most revenue for you. Advertising is still important. The Daily is a free product with, with fine ads. Do you think that other products are going to also be free or do you think at some point this gets put behind a paywall? The idea is that we make journalism that is worth paying for. That's like the, the mantra inside the building. Who pays for it is sometimes a question. Often, as you say, it's subscribers. But in the case of The Daily, it's advertisers. It's, it's free out there. I do think that it's beloved enough that people would pay for it. But right now, they don't need to. And we like the idea of having this giant reach. So 2 million people download The Daily every day. What's the ceiling there? I don't think it's 2 million. It's still growing. Is it 5 million? Is it 10 million? We don't know. But we'd like to kind of see how big that goes before we start thinking about making readers pay for it. So the daily is free now. We'll stay free for a while. Do yeah. you imagine that you're going to create other audio products that will be for subscribers only? I think we'll, we could try that. And yeah. I think we probably will. That's interesting and exciting. And um, other places have experimented with it. The audio ecosystem is a little bit funky um, with the, you know, you're dependent on, on the big flat platforms and the subscription feeds. So the mechanics of exactly how you do that and still stay seamless, I think are yet to be worked out exactly. But yeah, I think that kind of thing is interesting. Windowing and, and all those scenarios. So you guys, pre, you've been doing podcasts. You say, well, let's take podcasting seriously. And then boom, you have a giant hit. For years and years and years, you guys have tried video. You've been trying to figure out a video strategy at the times. And I've watched various folks being put in charge of it. David Carr is all of a sudden doing, you know, live feeds from the cafeteria. <laughs> I watched that. Yeah. Um, but none of it really worked for you. Why, why do you think an audio product worked for you when you're, and you took video very seriously, but it never really worked for you. And it, it, obviously nothing close to what the dailies had. Yeah. I mean, the video, our video department's done great videos and has won Pulitzer Prizes and, and Grant and, and Emmys and all these things, not a Grammy yet. Um, but I, I know what you mean, that the video hasn't quite caught on in the same, in the same way. And I think that audio we, we hit it at the right time for the medium, for people's user habits. Podcasts are just catching on. People, what we were able to do with The Daily is kind of replicate the New York Times at its best, both the journalism. I, I do think that the, the Daily is right up there with the front page of The New York Times, but also the ritual of it, right? Like you and I probably both grew up with the blue bag on the stoop and that's, you know, unfolding the front page with your coffee. That's part of how you enter the day. And that's a big role the New York Times plays in lots of people's lives. What we were able to do with the daily is 
create a new ritual where Michael Barbaro's voice is the new blue bag of the, of the New York Times in the morning. And I think that's part of, it folded into your life in a way that online video, they're great when you find them, but it, you don't quite make them a habit in the same way. And you guys are still going after video. You're not done. You've got the weekly, which I sort of think of as a, a TV version of, of the daily. Yeah. Which is sort of obvious, right? Yeah. Um, how is that going? Yeah. So video you're talking about, was that online video, digital video on our website and on YouTube. And that's kind of its own medium and serves its own purpose. The weekly is pretty different and it's a different bet and it's a new bet. And so that was kind of building off the success of the daily, but also just the general idea of the daily that this newsroom has a lot of stories to tell. And we thought we have a lot of visual stories to tell. Our reporters are going to crazy places every day and you can't see it. You can't see Nick Casey going down the Amazon jungle on a, on a float. Um, but he's doing that in order to pursue a story about climate change. So the weekly was an idea of let's go there. Let's take viewers, our audience there, and let's also be a part of this streaming revolution that's happening. So we launched this show um, over the summer with FX. It's Sunday nights on FX and it's on streaming on Hulu. And we're about four months in, halfway through our first season. Our 15th episode airs Sunday. <clears throat> and it's great. We're really, really proud of it. We've told stories from every continent now. You know, we're reporting a story in Nigeria and we've been in the Middle East and we just crashed an episode on Rudy Giuliani. It kind of encompasses the full newsroom, but we're developing a new language, a new visual language, in the same way that The Daily created a new language for audio. The audience for that, I think, is a few hundred thousand per week? Uh, no, we're over a million. Is that, are you including, I guess you're including like a Hulu on demand? Yeah, we did this partnership where it's airing on FX, but in this streaming world, we didn't want to just be on cable, we wanted to be Hulu, so we, we want to be streaming, so we part, made this partnership. So Monday morning, it goes on to Hulu. So you're essentially reaching the same audience you do with the weekly, numerically as you do with an episode of The Daily. The Daily's up to 2 million, so we've got some room to, to catch up on TV. Did I mention I wasn't very good at math? <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the weekly is getting a big will, audience. Will FX renew it? I hope so. That's, yeah, that's as the right I say, thing to say. We, um, the first season is 30 episodes. We're halfway through, so we've got some time to go. to. Um, and what are you, what are you learning as you're creating that? We're learning that TV is so hard. It's really different. It's a different uh, medium in every way. It's, you know, just the logistics are such an important part of it. In audio, you know, we can call up Ben Hubbard on the front on the border of Syria right now and get a riveting report of what he's seeing. In TV, that doesn't work. So the urgency of being there means that you've got to re-engineer the workflow of how reporting at the Times works in a way that has been, it's, a, it's the hardest thing I've ever worked on. Yeah, I've, I've noticed a few different times I've watched it, I keep thinking yeah. like, well, it's one thing to talk to the reporter as they're on their way to the thing or when they're back from the yeah. thing, or even you talk to Maggie Haberman at the yeah. debate. Having the cameras uh, trail your two reporters as they go down, I think it was Baton Rouge, yeah. to talk to the abusive exactly. principal. Exactly. Just logistically trying to figure out how they're going to accommodate someone else coming with them on that trip seems awfully difficult. It is, but what we found is that um, the emotion that television taps into, the best writers couldn't recreate. So uh, you're referring to one of the early episodes, um, Katie Benner and Erica Green investigated the school in Louisiana that turned out to be a hoax. They... Um, were 
they were supposedly sending all of these impoverished students off to college in these great colleges, but it turned out to be um, not what it was sold to be. And they did this great investigation inside. But when they confront the principal on this, you're there in the room for it. And the look on the kids' faces as they realize what's about to come and the, the passion in the teacher as he's being confronted, like writers can't convey that. And that's given us a whole new emotional tenor in our journalism that we didn't have before. Is there a story that, have you guys talked about stories and said, this is a fantastic story, we can never tell it on TV. There's just, it doesn't work visually. All the time, all the time. We, we, the, the weekly, the TV show has got a conference room in the newsroom on the fourth floor and all day long reporters are coming up there and pitching stories. The idea is like, we think of the weekly episode and it's one story per episode, so 30 minutes. We think of them as essentially magazine cover stories. This is a big story. And when you've got the biggest story on your beat for the year, come talk to the weekly. So all day long people are coming and I'd say four times out of five. It's an amazing story that would just never work. It's an investigation that's all based on documents and sources who would never go on the record. And we just can't make that work. We're looking for stories that really should be told visually. Not just stories that like you can if you stretch. We've done some of those, but it's best when it's a story that takes you someplace. Can we talk some more about the Times business model in general, right? Yeah. That you, you've tacked into subscriptions sort of because you had to, right? Because the ad market was and continues to decline. And I think for a while, there are a bunch of people, again, like myself and some of your current employees who said, we'll never get to a million uh, digital subscribers. And now you're at? Four and a half. Four and a half. We know some of that is the Trump bump, but not most of it, right? That's the, the thought inside. Yeah, I mean, I, the Trump bump, I, I think that Trump and politics and the state of the world right now, people care about news in a way that they hadn't before. And we've seen a huge wave of subscribers come in from that. And now Mark Thompson, uh, your CEO, is talking about 10 million That's subscribers. That's So when you shift your business model, you say we're moving to subscriptions, the journalists still want to do their best work but I'm assuming their work might change. They might be thinking about their stories differently or they might be asked to think about their stories differently. How does it work internally in the newsroom when you're at a subscription-based business instead of an ad-based business? Yeah, it's, um, it feels really healthy, actually, for the newsroom, for the journalism, because the stories that we care about the most inside, the big investigations, the magazine covers, the stories that you spend months on, the projects like 1619, these big ambitious stories are the ones that reporters most want to do. That's why you get in the business. That's why you go to the Times. And what we found is that those are the stories that most resonate with readers. That's what they want to read. You're measuring that by polling them and, and also seeing what they're clicking on. Yeah, I mean, we chart the audience obsessively and always looking at trends and we're doing reader surveys and those kinds of stories that break through that stories are only the stories that the New York Times tells are the stories that our readers most value. And that's what they tell us, why they subscribe to the Times. So that kind of virtuous circle is actually quite encouraging. Are there sort of two versions of the Times? There's the, the one that is read by non-subscribers and one that's read by subscribers and they, and they differ in terms of who's picking what kind of stories? No, if, if yeah, I'm a subscriber, yeah. am, I, am I reading different stories than if I'm dropping in? You're reading more stories. Um, people who subscribe certainly are in our world and are reading the morning briefing and, and reading the evening briefing and reading at lunchtime. And, and there's a, a more um, time with us for sure. The kinds of stories, yeah, I mean, I think there's some stories that we do that um, 
probably go really big on social. You know, if you think of some of the stuff that is about the trending story of the day online, some of our feature stories that um, maybe get a wider audience in uh, on the social universe that our subscribers wouldn't as much. But I think there, there's a way to overthink that. For us, a good story is a good story. And do you want your editorial employees thinking about the business and thinking about what a page view means and what a subscription means? Not really. Not traditionally, yeah. there, there used to be a very like, you know, prideful sort of distinction. Like the journalists were proud not to know how the business worked. I think yeah. that's gone away. I think it has too. Our journalists want to know how the business works um, and they want to make sure the business does work. And I think that making sure that people want to pay for your work is actually a kind of healthy incentive. But it's also a science that's pretty young for us. We don't really know what makes a person subscribe. It's not like if you write this kind of story, that means somebody's going to plunk down their credit card. We, we don't know that. We just believe that stories that we think are important, stories that we care about, are often, not always by any stretch, but often going to resonate. And so people are trying to do that kind of work. I remember when you guys launched the paywall, there was a lot of trepidation internally. People I talked to were very worried about it. You guys had done a paywall earlier that had not worked. It's worked, obviously. People will pay for it. Um, we are finding other examples of people paying for journalism and for content in general. And, and there are a handful of companies at scale that seem to have really built a good consumer-based subscription business. Where it doesn't seem to work right now is, is local papers medium-sized papers, small-town papers. Is there anything you're doing that you think is going to be able to help the Rochester, New York paper or the Rochester, Minnesota paper if they try to sell subscriptions online? You know, I started working at a local paper. The Staten Island Advance was the first paper I worked at. A lot of reporters, most, I might say, at the times, started at local papers. It's really important to us, and it's really, I think, one of the great tragedies in America that all these papers are in trouble I don't know if there's a silver bullet for them. And I'm not sure if the lessons of the times are going to be applicable to most of them. You know, what we were able to do, things like start a podcast, create a newsletter division, double down on foreign correspondence, send 30 people to the political conventions. It's, that's just not what the Rochester paper can do or should do. So spiritually, the biggest lessons of, um, you know, pay attention to your readers and what they want and try to make yourself create new habits in their lives. I think that stuff is helpful, but the actual playbook more tactically, I'm not sure if it's how relevant it is. Dean Bacay, your executive editor, said something to the effect of, I think in five years, half these papers are, are going to be gone. Does that sound right to you? I mean, if that's where gravity is heading, right? Um, I don't know if it's as stark as that, but you could certainly picture that it is. Um, and I don't know, I'm not optimistic, frankly, um, with the the way that media works, the what people are going to pay for. I, I'm really, I'm nervous about it. Some of the richest people in the world work in Silicon Valley and some of the richest corporations are based there. Do you want those folks to, to step in and, and, and subsidize? Do you want a Google or Facebook to, to flat out subsidize local papers that are struggling? No. I mean, every time Google and Facebook tries to help the journalism industry, they end up squashing something they didn't mean to. So I'd be surprised if the solution is there. I mean, there, there are some great initiatives coming from Silicon Valley and there's some there's all kinds of laboratories and news labs and foundations that are doing great work. And I think 
a lot of that's important. We should be trying all of that. But I'd be really surprised if the social networks are the ones who are going to be able to save local journalism. I think you're right. <laughs> I have other questions, but I want to open it up to you guys. And are you guys shy or are you question askers? I want to um, just hear your perspective a little bit, Sam, on, you know, every time it seems like there is a major like election or something like that, there is more interest in news, right? You know, how do you foresee the 2020 elections sort of impacting just general interest in news? And is that a, is that a moment for sort of the media industry generally to kind of show some of the show, show the public the value that perhaps the public's been taking for granted? Yeah, absolutely. I think that we, we think about it that way. And I think others should too. When big stories come, um, it, it's a chance to explain your role in the world because people are going to be coming to you and what you do and to showcase your best work. And so we're trying to think about the 2020 election. You know, Peter, as you said, not just as a horse racer, here's what happened yesterday, but here are profiles of every candidate. Here's where they stand on everything. Here are interactive maps of the battleground states and who's winning and who's losing. Here's the full opinion report. Here's, you know, the full menu. We're covering this thing in a thousand different ways as, as everybody is. And I think it's on us to show that to people, to not expect that readers are just going to automatically find it, but also to show the value of it, you know, how we know all of this stuff and how we found it out. You know, I think too often we make people go on a scavenger hunt to find the important work. And what we're trying to do much better at is to present it to you, whether it's in a newsletter or a podcast or on our website or a push alert or a live event to try and engage with people where they are, but still do it with the kind of integrity that the front page would have. How do, you, how do you guys think about balancing what seems to me to be an unprecedented amount of interest in the internal workings of the times and sort of an ongoing critique of headlines and languages, language and sourcing and angles um, that I just cannot imagine happened 30 years ago? I mean, I think the people who cared about the New York Times who didn't work there were probably a few thousand you know, media nerds like me. Yeah. And now you literally have like millions of critics. And it seems like you guys do respond to some of that at some point. But I, it's got to be in a completely different way of working for for an old times hand. Yeah, it's a it's a high wire act. Um, and you're right; every headline, every tweet can turn into the next big drama, and you never quite know where it's going to come from. Um, Sometimes it comes from your own employees, right? Sending <laughs> emails to some of it is self caused. Yeah. Absolutely, that that definitely happens. But um, I think your point of like living life out on on the public stage, like we haven't ever before. I mean, the president of the United States is tweeting about us um, most days now. Uh, you know, in some ways, it's a reminder that people really care about the times, but also about news. Um, and that's good for us, even if it's painful and agonizing and infuriating a lot of the time. I think that I take that trait to have people really, really care rather than not. Do we have more questions here? Some back here. Hi, Sam. It's uh, Lee. We got to work together years ago on uh, the launch of a virtual reality project. And I just wanted to, as we're talking about podcasts and video and so forth, is whether you talk about virtual reality or different techniques, how does the Times look at telling a story, of course, in the best possible way, but also using new technology? And when do you decide to keep leaning into that versus say, maybe that's a trend we shouldn't follow anymore? Yeah, um, it's a great question. We, um, several years ago, 
partnered with Google and sent out, I don't know if you guys remember, the Google Cardboard. It was kind of an early VR viewer. And we sent those out to all Sunday subscribers and made a big virtual reality film that took you inside a refugee camp. And we were quite thrilled with it. Um, Subscribers were too. It got a great response and it felt like a new form of journalism. And I think it was. I'm really proud of that work. But VR... um, it, it didn't catch on, really. It's still really cumbersome, and it's kind of this hard-to-use technology. I think that kind of immersive experience is really powerful, and it's going to become a part of our lives, I'm sure. But it felt like the technology wasn't quite there yet. So we've done a bunch of virtual reality work and work in AR. We have some really, really creative journalists who are playing around with this kind of immersive technologies. But for us... We feel like the New York Times is a big mainstream brand and we want to do things that reach lots and lots of people. So when something is niche, we should be tracking it. We should know how it works, but we're going to really pour resources when we see an opportunity to bring that to the big main stage. Question here. Earlier in the day, we've been talking about uh, media and targeting and use of data, and and it's no surprise or no secret that we all consume the media and content that we want. Uh, and as you think about new environments and new landscapes by which the New York Times is, is coming uh, going out, you know, I'm one of your four million uh, app subscribers, but I know lots of my family members who are not, and my worldview and their worldview are completely different on the basis of what we consume. Uh, have you guys thought about uh, how you expand the landscape uh, or other uh, uh, journalistic enterprises expand the landscape so that there's more common accepted uh, truths? Yeah, we think that's hugely important, and we spend a lot of time thinking about that. Um, We're trying to reach as many people as possible, and that's, you know, we talked about the TV show and the podcast. That's kind of the founding idea behind that, is to reach people who aren't just coming to us, reach people who aren't getting the blue bag on the stoop, people who don't even think about the times. Part of the reason we put the television show on FX was that it's a big mainstream brand in 90 million homes that does high quality scripted shows. Lots of their viewers who watch Atlanta and American Crime Story, they don't know who Michael Barbaro is. They don't listen to the daily. The New York Times is just not part of their radar. And so putting a show on prime time there, we thought would be a big way to get them a taste of our journalism and start to bring them into our ecosystem. And we think about that a lot. I mean, the CNN debate last night, we're trying to find as many ways as we can to broaden that reach that, that you're describing and, and bring them in. As far as you know, other organizations, I think everybody's trying versions of that. Um, but we feel it's really important that we're not just preaching to the choir, that we're not just speaking to our people. We're constantly trying to get outside of that. Poll after poll shows that there's minimally two Americas, right? And, and depending on your, where you are politically, you believe in a certain set of facts from a certain uh, news outlet, right? We're really just talking about Fox versus CNN. Um, but it seems like there's a big swath of the, this country, and I'm assuming around the world, that is just never going to trust you or certainly doesn't trust you, is not going to take anything the Times takes rights seriously. Do you think you, that's repairable? Or do you think that's just kind of, we're stuck here now in this in this. That's, I think, the scariest thing about this moment is the Times, but lots of journalism organizations and even the idea of journalism itself is under assault every day, both from the White House, but from 
all different corners now. Um, and that's really scary. I really think this idea that there's two versions of what happened yesterday and they're completely opposite and two different communities believe that they are each true. That's really dangerous. For us, we feel like the best way to push back against that, and we are aggressively trying to push back against that, is to say, look, don't take our word for it. It's not just the New York Times says this is what happened. Here's how we know what's happened. Here's who went to the scene. Here's what they saw. They took pictures. They took video. They took audio of it. Here are the documents that we use. Here's how we conducted this investigation. We think we're a long ways past the time when institutions could just declare something and everyone believed it to be so. It really feels like we're in a show your work kind of world. And so we're trying to change the way that we report, the way that we tell stories in order to earn the reader's trust and kind of peel back the curtain on every article. And even sometimes the way you package it, right? Like you've got photographs of the reporters sometimes, depending on the kind of story. Yeah. And that was something that never would have existed. And I think the idea there is, here's a human being who brought this story to right. you. And not just any human being, but you know, the person writing about the Supreme Court is Adam Liptak, who is himself a lawyer and was in fact the First Amendment lawyer for the New York Times. These people earned their credibility. And you would never know that before in the old days. It'd just be a gray byline that nobody noticed. But we think that these reporters who are going to the scenes should be trusted. And we want to explain to you why we trust them and why we think you should do. So last question before anyone else. All right, I get the last word or you get the last word. I asked you this depressing question about local news. We don't have a good answer. Do we think that this two Americas, two realities, one fact-based, maybe even the other one not fact-based, do we think that gets repaired or do we think this is just where, this moment is where we're going to be at for a long time? I think it's really hard. Um, I think it's really hard. I think that social media has um, reinforced a lot of these divisions and inflamed them and made it really hard to break through. I think that cable news um, has kind of increased the tribalism in among people who pay attention to the news. I think it's really hard. I'm not optimistic that it's going to resolve itself anytime soon, but the world changes really quickly. Um, who thought we'd be here just a few years ago? So I, I, I'm not totally giving up on it. Okay, I don't want to end on a totally down <laughs> note. What's the lead story for tomorrow's uh, front page? Uh, there's probably been four things that have happened since we came in this room. Yeah. All right, I'll check, I'll check the app. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Peter. 